is uh, from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the prophets from the 8th century B.C. This is quite a while before the Gospels. And uh, without going into a lot of, lot of detail, Isaiah is a big book, 66 chapters. And the first 39 chapters are largely bad news. And there's a host of reasons for that. One of the reasons is Israel has had the crummiest kings. God's people, who were not supposed to have a king in the first place, but said, no, we want a king. These other nations have the kings. We want to have a king. God raises up a king. <clears throat> uh, the kings basically degenerated. And you'll get a few bursts of a good king that follows the Lord, but it, it doesn't go well. And the consequences of that are felt by everybody. And so God finally brings great discipline, uh, great hardness into the lives of His people. And He describes that in the first really two-thirds almost of Isaiah. But in that section, in chapter 9, surrounded by a lot of hard news, there's this prophecy. And here's what God is saying through His mouthpiece, Isaiah, is that there's going to be a child born, and he's going to be an actual child. It's not a phantom child, it's not a pretend child, a real human child. But here's the thing. He's going to be the king that actually you long for. He's going to bring about the things that your hearts long to see and for those things to happen. Now, I, I was intrigued by the fact that when I was getting ready for this sermon... Uh, an Old Testament scholar named uh, E.J. Young, Edward Young, he said that this, his, his claim was that the fact that these names, or this name, singular, hasn't been understood better, he said, is one of the great tragedies of biblical study and exposition. Now, that might not sound like a dramatic statement for you, but for an Old Testament scholar, that's kind of like WWE SmackDown kind of talk. Like, this is a huge deal that this has not been dealt with. And he's saying this, if you don't really come to grips with these realities that are this name, you won't understand who the Messiah is. And the Messiah is who He is. He's not who we want Him to be or craft Him to be or misunderstand Him to be. He is who He is. And His name reflects who He is. So what is his name? What's the child's name? Isaiah chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want to read you a quote and see if you can imagine who might have said this. I've heard a lot of sermons in the past ten years or so that make me want to get up and walk out. They're secular, psychological, self-help sermons. Friendly, but of no use. They didn't make you straighten up. They didn't give you anything hard. At some point, and in some way, a sermon has to direct people toward the death of Christ in the campaign that God has waged over the centuries to get our attention. I'll give you a hint. He was at the Peace Center Monday. Garrison Keeler made that comment about preaching. Now, that's interesting to me because if you've ever listened to Garrison Keeler, uh, you know, he comes from the Midwest, Lutheran background, and he, he is no stranger to joking about churches or pastors or funny Christian practices. But he said that that there is a tendency when we get up and we talk about the Bible uh, to, to basically go overly man-centered and not to let God be who He is. And specifically, he said, a sermon, I think, has got to direct you to hard realities, even the death of Christ. Now, if there's any season of the year where churches, pastors, ministries, whatever, are prone to fall into that kind of the man-centered thing, the make-people-feel-better thing, is probably during Advent. Uh, and even when people are, not, are trying not to go nostalgic, and, and again, I'm thinking about my own communication and policing myself, it's easy not to present Christ as the Scriptures actually present Him. This passage is gold. It is gold for seeing the Messiah as He's actually being presented. Now, these names and what they're describing, they overlap. But here's how I want to break it down. Um, sometimes when I'm talking about Jesus, I'll speak in terms of His person and work. And that's just a way of saying not only what He does, what He accomplished, what He's going to do, but just who He is, His person and His work. So let's look at this in terms of the person, the child's person, and then the child's work. When he becomes a man. All right, first, and this will, this will be out of order than, uh, than how it's given in Isaiah 9 6. But first, the person. The first thing I want to look at is that it says he's the mighty God. And the reason I want to start here is that not all biblical interpreters, Christian or Jewish, would say that Isaiah 9 6 is fulfilled by Jesus. There's not uniformity of thought about that. But the thing that jumped off the page at me as, as I was working on this is what happens in the next chapter of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, I'll read this. God says this. He's speaking about this small group of people who after all these other people have wandered off from Him, after all these hard things have gone on with God's people, that there's going to be a remnant. These are the people who still believe in Him, that follow Him, that, that follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here's what it says. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And that is the exact same Hebrew term that Isaiah 9 says is the name of this child. There's two Hebrew words that are translated God, typically. Elohim and El. Sometimes Elohim is a title that's attributed to people. 
human beings and to God. But the name El in the book of Isaiah is only God. It's always God. Now, here's what that's saying. There's going to be a child, normal Hebrew word for child, normal Hebrew word for born. He's going to be the mighty God. Let's just stop there. Because, again, this is a familiar passage. It's sung in Handel's Messiah. It's pretty familiar. Um, Let's put it this way. A phrase that that evangelical Christians use is, we'll we'll speak in terms of applying the Bible to my daily life. You know, if, if, uh, if I read a good Christian book, it helped me apply the Bible to my daily life. Or this Christian preacher, he, he helped me apply the Bible to my daily life. All right. The name of this child is the mighty God. How do I apply that to my daily life? All right. Here's an application to all our daily lives. Our name is not the mighty God. And if you have a child, your child is not the mighty God. And your child's future and well-being and health is not the mighty God. The end of your singleness, if that is what you crave, is not the mighty God. Your work is not the mighty God. The expectations of those who oversee you is not the mighty God. And you are not the mighty God. The child is the mighty God. This child who grows to be a grown man, he's the mighty God. He is Yahweh. It also says this, he's the everlasting father. Now, I've heard the claim, and I'm scared that I might have said it at some point, uh, but I've heard the claim that, you know, really it's in the Old Testament that we get God as king, creator, ruler, but it's not really till the New Testament that he reveals himself as a father. And that does not check out. Uh, later on in the book of Isaiah, almost at the end, this is a prayer to God. It says, for you are our father. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. That was already a title for thinking about God, what he is to his people. He is the king. He is the creator. We are his subjects, but we're not only that. That his people are his children, and he is their father. And the claim that's being made is this. This child's name is that he's the everlasting father. And when you talk about God being everlasting or being eternal, it's different than how you and I are everlasting or how we're eternal. Because God did put eternity in our hearts. And every man and woman and child in this room will be everlasting in some way. Whether you die in relationship with God and you're resurrected to eternal life, or whether you do not have a relationship with God and you're resurrected after death to wrath. All of us, all of us persist as body and soul forever. It's everlasting. In that sense, we're eternal forward. But the way that God's eternity or everlastingness is different is that His goes back. Now think about what that's saying. It's saying this child, he's a son, 
But to His people, He's the everlasting Father. And here's what that means. His disposition toward the people who need Him is tender. His disposition toward the people who need Him is fatherly. Not a bad father, but the ideal father. But the amazing thing is He doesn't just possess that disposition now and then have it forever, although He has that. He will never stop having that disposition toward those who need Him. But as the everlasting Father, He's always had it. You know, and eternity is the mind, is the thing that blows our minds. And we've talked about this before. Eternity is like a container that if, if we had blocks, blocks that represented some unit of time, whether that's a century or a millennium, you could not throw enough blocks in the container to ever fill it. It's eternity. It's everlasting. But His name is this, is that He has always had that tender regard going back and going forward to a size that could never be filled. That's who He is. That's His name. What about His work? Well, He's the Prince of Peace. That's a famous one. And uh, I remember... Maybe a couple of advents ago, we talked about that. For some, I don't know how this started, but somehow in Christian art, sometimes you'll see angels floating up over the shepherds, and they'll be holding a banner, like two angels on each end, and and the banner, you know, says peace. Uh, okay, the confusing thing about, and that really made no contribution to the sermon, but it was, it was worth bringing up. But the the. The, the thing that's confusing about his name being the Prince of Peace is, okay, what's the name of the child? His name is the Prince of Peace. And then when the angels do come, you know, the herald angels come and proclaim to the shepherds that he's here, it's uh, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace. But the child grows up. And at one point, this is in Matthew chapter 10, he's speaking to a group of people And he said, here's what the Prince of Peace says. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. That seems like a conflict. How is he the Prince of Peace and how can he say that? Here's what we've got to understand. Is that peace can be manifested in two kinds of relationships. Horizontal or vertical. When we think about peace, what it is, why we need it, we are pretty dominated by thinking about the need of it horizontally. Uh, Peace in family, between family members. Peace between nations for global peace. Those are horizontal relationships. When Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth, that's what he's talking about. Because, and some of you have tasted this directly, if you follow him, if you follow this man child who grew up, believe me, it may increase the conflict in your own family, in your relationships, in your workplace. And Jesus laid his cards on the table and said, don't think it won't be that way. That might mean a rough Thanksgiving, a rough Christmas, or it might mean martyrdom, but conflict will come. But he is the Prince of Peace. How is he the Prince of Peace? Because he comes to bring a peace in the vertical relationship, which is the most important one. 
When we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, again, we, we, it's familiar, and so we tend to go on autopilot. But what are the lyrics? Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, Peace on Earth, and Mercy Mild. And then, what is the understanding of that peace? God and sinners reconciled. The Apostle Paul says in Romans that when you believe in Jesus, when you place your faith in Him, and that this guilty verdict is lifted from you and was applied to Jesus and He was condemned and punished as if He was guilty, and then this verdict of not guilty is applied to you and you're welcomed in and you're loved and you're adopted, and this relationship that was broken between you and God, really that was war, is now peace. Paul says that's to be justified. When you're justified, you have peace with God. And I want to say this before I go further. And this is... uh, May I be candid? This is the kind of thing that I, I don't like to say a lot, but I probably shouldn't ever go a whole year without saying this. Sometimes in conversation with, with you, one-on-one, uh, sometimes we're just talking about life or we're just kind of shooting the breeze. But sometimes I'll, I'll ask the question, what is the big thing that Jesus did to you? And do you know what has become one of the most disconcerting answers to me? It has become one of the most frightening answers. And when I tell you, it will not sound frightening. But it is frightening. It's to say, without Jesus, I could not make it through the day. That does not sound frightening. But what concerns me is that sometimes, when I've asked some of you who have sat under gospel preaching, I know for years, the great thing that Jesus has done is to help you get through the last week or a hard year. And I want to say to you, that, that concerns me. God did not become a child to just help us get through the week. Although He is faithful and He is right there, He is God with us, that's His name too. But the great thing He came to do was to remove the warfare between a holy God and sinners and to reconcile two parties that were at odds. That's what it means for Him to be the Prince of Peace. That is His name. That is His great work. But the other name is this, is that He's the Wonderful Counselor. The Wonderful Counselor. Uh, Almost every technical sort of commentary that I looked at said, the Hebrew here isn't so much wonderful, like an adjective, but it's more like a noun. He's, He's a wonder of a counselor. And there's a lot going on there, so I'm going to try to tie up some strings here. The word wonder in Hebrew, the way it's used here, is something that's attributed to God alone. It's not talking about somebody who's impressive or insightful. It's talking about a wonder is something that only God can do. The heavens are a wonder. The parting of the Red Sea was a wonder. Mount Sinai becoming like a volcano that terrified the Israelites, 
that was a wonder. The way this child will grow to be a counselor means that he is the wonder. It's really a claim to deity. But what does it mean that he's a counselor? Now, when we hear counselor, we tend to think therapist. And there's a sense in which he's not like a therapist, and he is like a therapist. Here's, you know, a therapist like, oh, you pay however much, 150 bucks for an hour, and you sit down and you talk about things one-on-one. That's a therapist. Here's how he's not like that. Here's how he is like that. He's not like that in the sense that an ancient counselor was somebody who would give counsel, most importantly, to the king. And he had to be someone who could get up over incredible amounts of information to say, well, what is this nation that we're going up against in war? What are they like? What is the topography between here and there? What will be their strategies? What are our strengths and weaknesses? You had to understand these massive kind of broad brush uh, pieces of information, but you also had to understand this person, this king. What are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? How, How do I say this where he gets it? How will his ego get in the way? How do I say this in a way that he will apply the wise course of action? The name of this child is that he is in himself a wonder. But in particular, the way he is able to speak cosmic level truth to you is wonderful. I'll give you an example of this, the fulfillment of this. When the child grows to be a man, John chapter 11, uh, his close friend dies, Lazarus. And he intentionally waits until his friend Lazarus has died and been buried. And then he comes to the place where Lazarus' family lives. The first person to come out and speak to him when he arrives is Martha. And Martha says to him, Lord If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he responds to her. He then makes his way closer to the grave, and then he speaks to the other sister, Mary. And guess what Mary says? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he says something completely different to her. Now think about that. The same day, the same context... The same family, the same man, within the same few minutes, says different things to the exact same sentence. Why? It's because he is the wonderful counselor. He doesn't just know cosmic level truth, but he knows the individual person with whom he is dealing. What they most need to hear. How you bring this cosmic truth to bear in his or her life. Well, what do we do with all that? Um, I, I, I pull this back up because it had been a long time since I had, had seen this, but I, um, I remember this song from Fiddler on the Roof. You ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Maybe you were in Fiddler on the Roof. Maybe you were a fiddler, the Fiddler on the Roof. But it had been a while, and I, but I remember this, uh, this song, and I, I looked it back up, and the lyrics were interesting. It's a scene where this couple, the main characters... The husband asks his wife, and this was an occasion for a song, Do you love me? 
Uh, and I believe it's because one of their children is about to get married. So that just brings up a host of you know, family issues. And he asks, do you love me? And as she sings and responds, she says, you know, for 25 years now, I've cleaned your house and cooked your food and washed your clothes, uh, given you children, milked your cow <laughs> for 25 years. How can you ask me, do you love me? But he keeps pushing the issue. And in the song, he keeps asking, yes, but do you love me? And, uh, you know, I, I, I was not an English major, but I would venture to say at that moment, he is what your English teacher would have called a Christ figure. Because that is the question. That is the question. Do we love him? And thinking about his name gives us an interesting template with what to do if we don't. Because here's the first thing we need to know. If we know about him, I know he was born in Bethlehem and his parents were Joseph and Mary and he lived probably 30-something years and blah, 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 blah. If we know about him but do not love him, here's the first sobering thing that we need to know. He knows that. He knows that about us. Because he is the mighty God Nothing escapes him. It's not as if, well, if I just don't say that and verbalize it, and if I act as if I am excited about these things and love him, then that'll convince him. He knows everything. Everything is naked and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. But let's not stop there. See, if if we don't love him... The great thing we need is reconciliation. And that is not going to come by us saying, well, you know what, I I think from now on, I'm going to love him more. I think I'm going to wake up earlier. I think I'm going to have a better devotional life. I think Christmas is is really going to turn me around. I mean, I hope you do get up early. I hope I get up earlier. It's good to get up early and read your Bible and pray. We don't do it enough. It will not reconcile us to a holy God. It is a wonderful means of being reminded how holy He is and how gracious He is. But the act of doing it, or any other act on our part, will not fix it. If God loved the world so much that He gave His own treasure... You know, one of our Christmas hymns talks about He gives His greatest treasure, it's His Son. And that we are apathetic toward that. He knows that about us as the mighty God. We need someone to atone for us. We need someone to cleanse us. We need anger that would be richly deserved by us to be diverted from us. And He is the Prince of Peace. That is His name. And we need to know that because we're people who do things like that and we'll continue to do things like that, we need to know that He doesn't just tolerate us. I mean, I'd rather be tolerated by God if it's between that and going to hell. Sure, I'll just be tolerated by God. But you know what my heart craves is that you not just rescue me from hell but that you love me and that you be tender 
about how foolish I am. That I've been foolish today, and I'm going to be foolish again. His name is Everlasting Father. He's always been fatherly. He's always been tender towards sinners, and He'll never stop being that. That disposition will last forever. But we need a counselor. We need somebody who doesn't just come and say, here's the great cosmic thing I've done on the cross, here's the great cosmic strife between God and evil, and here's how He won on the cross, and that's the data you need to know, and I'll let you study that, and we'll be back for review. But we need someone who can take all that and say, now, what in the world does that have to do with you? Why is it that your child has more of your heart than that? Why is it that your work consumes you, your body and your thinking and your feeling, and that does not? Let me help you. Let me speak truth into your life. Let me remind you of something that's so much, be- so much better than even family and work, which are gifts of His, which is part of His good world, which is what He gives to us, but let me show you something that trumps it all so that your heart is engaged. And you know what? If we have somebody who will speak the truth to us, know God's will and how to apply it to us in particular, if we have somebody that can take care of this lack of, re- of, this lack of relationship between us and God, if we have somebody who rules over us as God, but is fatherly and caring toward us, you know what that sounds an awful lot like? We have a prophet and priest and king. And here's my hope, and I'll be done. My hope is that if that does not grab our hearts, that we will get on our knees and cry out for Him to make it do so. If not, you know what December 26th will be like? It will be like that yucky feeling when you walk out of the movie. You know, that, you know, the worst part of going to a movie is walking out. Because for a little while you felt like you were in the romance. Or you owned a Transformer. Like it was really you. And then you just kind of walk out and go to your car and go, I guess I'm going to head home now. Uh, you know, just like I'm kind of back to my mundane existence. and Kind of crummy actually. If these things don't grab our hearts, December 26th is this yucky, mundane crash. But when these things grab our hearts, December 26th can be like December 25th. February 9th can be like December 25th. Because it's true. His name... His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God... Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will always have that name. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please help us. And we do pray that we might be people who love your word, love to read it, love to hide it in our hearts, love to think about it, love to pray, love to be with your people. But, oh God, all that, all that can only be but a means to the one that we truly need, and that is you. Oh, Lord Jesus, we need to eat your flesh, 
and drink your blood by faith. You are so good. You're so loving. We wander off. Please woo us back and captivate us with your great name. We ask this in your name. Amen.